Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Callum Henderson. My guest this week is historian and author Jeffrey Parker, who's joined me to discuss his new co-authored book on the Spanish Armada, subtitled England's Deliverance in 1588. Along with fellow historian Colin Martin, Jeffrey takes an in-depth look at the origins of the Spanish Armada, launched by King Philip II of Spain and Portugal, and why, despite coming very close to success, it failed to subdue and invade Elizabethan England, as intended. Jeffrey also tells us about some of the new evidence uncovered that shed light on the doomed campaign more than 430 years after it was launched. We're lucky to include a fascinating and detailed extract from Jeffrey and Collins' book in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, which is out now and is also available to access in full on the past website. I do encourage you to go and seek it out. Please visit the link in our bio for more details. First, though, here's my conversation with Jeffrey. Okay, uh, Jeffrey, thanks very much for uh, for joining me today. Um, so you're the author of a new book along with your colleague Colin Martin uh, on the Spanish Armada and uh, England's Deliverance in 1588, as the subtitle goes. Um, I was wondering to begin with, what interests you about the the campaign? Well, it was um, a chance encounter with Colin Martin. He came to St Andrews just after I did in the 1970s. And he was putting together a conference which would bring together historians and archaeologists. He is an underwater archaeologist. He had dived on a number of wrecks. I was interested in the 16th century and the reign of Philip II. And Colin said, would you like to come to my conference? And I said, well, what could I possibly say on the Spanish Armada that's interesting? And he paused for a while and he said, well, what about if it had landed? What if it had succeeded? What do you think would have happened then? And I thought, wow. And um, it's the fastest article I've ever written because it was such a good idea. I'd never thought of it. And at the end of the afternoon, I had a draft and that sucked me in. So that's really how it all started back in um, 1974. And then um, Robert Baldock, uh, who then worked at Uh, Weidenfeld uh, invited me to a chat and he said, you know, don't you have a book you could write for me? And I had solemnly sworn that I would not take on any more books. And uh, when I said, no, no, much too busy, can't do that, he said, not even a book on the Spanish Armada. And I thought, oh, the one subject that fascinates me. But I did say if I did it, it would have to be with Colin because it seemed to me this combination of archaeology and history was unique and would produce a very interesting book. So that's how it all started, two completely accidental uh, uh, meetings uh, 10 years apart. Colin and I discussed this article in the 70s. Robert invited the book in, I think it was 1982, and um, it became clear that the only sensible date in which to publish it was 1988, which was the 400th, 400th anniversary. And so the book came out, and, and I'm proud to say it made it into the, uh, the, the top 10. It got, I think, to number four that year. So it, uh, it was a success. But really, it's an example of serendipity. I mean, Colin coming to St. Andrews, making that suggestion, Robert suggesting the book, a book I really didn't want to write, and it turned out okay. Yes, and the you know the, the Armada, as it's referred to in sort of English and British history, um, as you say, there's only one in it, sort of that kind of history. Um, could you ver- briefly summarise for us sort of why it took place and what its sort of central aims were? Our argument is that Queen Elizabeth I uh, provokes it. 
Uh, she and Philip II uh, were related. Philip II had married her half-sister Mary and had ruled England as king. It was Philip and Mary. And his name even came first when they signed legal acts. When she dies, his powers end. And so Elizabeth takes over. And for 10 years, they're on very good terms. But then a number of things happen, uh, small diplomatic incidents, uh, uh, and, and they fall out and they become more and more aggressive towards each other. Philip supports rebellions, uh, rebels in Ireland, and Elizabeth supports rebels in the Netherlands. Uh, but, you know, it was not, uh, the, the, these things happen all the time. But in 1585, Elizabeth decides that she's really going to hurt Philip, and she sends a fleet under Francis Drake, which first of all attacks Galicia in the northeast of Spain. Uh, they wreck churches, they take hostages, they destroy church property, and then they sail off to the Canaries and do the same thing there. And then they sail to the Caribbean and start attacking uh, all sorts of uh, Spanish outposts. And this is something that Philip cannot ignore. So he goes to his allies, and particularly he goes to the Pope and says, right, we need to take down Elizabeth. She's a Protestant. She's turned English Protestant. She's undone all my good work uh, 30 years ago, uh, making England Catholic again. We need to take her down. Are you going to pay for it? And the Pope said, sure, I will contribute. And so Philip begins to put together all the resources of his empire. And it is, as his spin doctors say, an empire on which the sun never sets. So he has the uh, treasure from America, which is brought over by a fleet every year. Uh, he has troops and resources in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal. He's, he's become king of Portugal in 1580. So he is able to put together the resources of his whole empire, but uh, it takes him three years. His plan, and he changes his plan many times, is that he will utilize all the resources that he can gather in Lisbon onto a single fleet, which will have a lot of soldiers and a siege train. And he will sail this fleet, he will send this fleet through the English Channel uh, to the Netherlands, where uh, uh, he has a very powerful army assembled uh, under his nephew, the Duke of Parma, Alexander Farnese, Duke of Parma. Parma has about 27,000 men assembled on the coast of Flanders. On paper, it looks like a terrific plan. How can it fail? As ships uh, will go out from Lisbon, they will sail to the ports of Flanders, and they will pick up the army, and they will invade, and they will take London within a couple of weeks, preferably with Elizabeth in it. <laughs> what could possibly go what, wrong? What indeed could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the age of sail. And so it, uh, it is difficult to get a fleet to sea uh, and keep it on course. Uh, it is difficult to communicate if you're the commander of that fleet uh, with the Duke of Parma because, of course, the channel is seething with English ships trying to stop the communications. Uh, nevertheless, the fleet gets off Calais which is only about 40 miles away from the Duke of Parma, who starts uh, 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 loading his army aboard. It's a very close-run thing. The uh, uh, crucial decision is when Elizabeth's admirals 
uh, Howard of Effingham, who's the commander, Drake, Frobisher, Hawkins, and a man called William Winter. All of them get together on the flagship and say, you know, this is serious. We have to break up the Spanish fleet. And they get the idea of sending in fireships. They have eight fireships. The cost is about a thousand pounds. And even if you uh, increase that for, uh, 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 for inflation, it's about the cost of a cruise missile. And those eight fireships break up the Spanish fleet. And once they've done that, the English can get in among the formation. They can cut out individual ships and basically bombard them to death. So the Armada fails because the English employ superior tactics, first the fireships, and then closing in and in ship-to-ship conflict, the English proved to be better. Yes, it, it did seem to be sort of doomed from the start, I think. That would be the, the, the summary, certainly from what I got from the extract. Uh... Can, I, can I just correct you there, um, Callum? I don't think it is doomed from the start. It is, it is a, a, in some ways, it's a dumb plan. But you have to remember this is the age of faith. Both yes. Philip... Uh, and his commanders, and Elizabeth and her commanders are absolutely convinced that God is on their side and that God will provide miracles to bridge the gap between ends and means. Philip is convinced this will happen. He spends a large part of each day at prayer. Uh, He has processions through the streets. Uh, He makes sure all the soldiers and sailors on the fleet confess Uh, uh, Colin's excavations produced a whole set of little medallions uh, with with the Virgin and Christ, uh, uh, so many of them that clearly these were issued uh, to all the sailors. Um, We just happen to have the the ones that uh, uh, on the sailors who drowned. But it's, it's a religious enterprise. It's even called a crusade. What we tend to forget is that the English are just as convinced that God is on their side. Uh, uh, there are a number of preachers paid for by the Queen. Uh, Francis Drake uses the word God, Christ, uh, 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 almost every sentence. Um, um, I, I did a calculation on the major uh, uh, collection of English documents called um, The Defeat of the Spanish Armada, a collection put together by John Knox Lawton in the early 20th century. And the count is something like a thousand uses, uh, invocations of Christ, uh, God, uh, uh, in, in the correspondence of the English. So they too really think it's, it's something that could go either way. War is very uncertain. And so I think, yes, it's a dumb plan, but no, it's not necessarily a doomed plan. Yeah. And obviously the English do see it as their deliverance, as you say in the as the subtitle. It's that this it quickly becomes part of a Protestant calendar of of deliverances. Um the first, of course, is the death of Mary, which allows a succession of Elizabeth Protestant. Uh then comes uh, the failure of a number of attempts to murder Elizabeth, uh, starting in 1571 with a, a guy called Roberto Ridolfi, who tries to put together a, a, an invasion which is not dissimilar uh, from the Armada campaign. It fails, uh, but the English regard this as a deliverance. Uh, there are There's almost a plot a year uh, against Elizabeth to uh, replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, who is the nearest heir. Uh, she happens to be a Catholic. 
Uh, and so uh, she has support from abroad. She has support from English Catholics and a number of really, really quite dangerous plots are uncovered. And each one of them is thwarted. The queen uh, dies of old age at the age of 71 in 1603. Uh, uh, but Mary, Queen of Scots, ends up on the scaffold. She's executed in February 1587. Uh, but that too is a deliverance uh, in Protestant eyes. The defeat of the Armada is another. And then, of course, you have the failure of the gunpowder plot. So there's this succession of, of, of near escapes uh, which form a, a Protestant calendar uh, the landing of William of Orange in 1688 will will produce another one, and these deliverances are trotted out uh, with with a, a regularity every time England is threatened by a Catholic power, which means most powers, the French, uh, the Spanish, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're both the major Protestant uh, players, protagonists, and they they keep trying to invade England. So each time they fail, it's a deliverance. You even see it in 1888. So the, tri- the tercentenary of the Armada, the bicentennial of William of Orange. And uh, there are lots of celebrations about how, how the attempt to impose papal uh, absolutism on England failed. Uh, it was not prominent in 1988, thank goodness. But the, uh, the aftermath, the, uh, the shadow of the Armada, and England's deliverance lasts a very long time. We probably see it for the last time in 1940, uh, when Churchill invokes the Armada as an example of how, even though Germany may be threatening, uh, they will not prevail. Um, It's part of his long speech about, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight in the streets, we will never surrender. And he, in that speech, he mentioned the the Spanish Armada as an example of how uh, England may be up against the ropes. But in the end, uh, uh, he said, in God's good time, uh, we will prevail. We will never surrender. And has to be said, we never did. No, that's very true. It's definitely you can see why it did um, sort of take such a place in English history and British history as well. I'd like to ask you, sort of on the flip side, where the where its place is in the sort of Spanish history. I mean, does it? If you went to Spain today and asked people about the Armada, would they be humiliated or would they sort of be disinterested? Is it not as significant in that side of things? Um, it's not the greatest defeat of the Spanish navy. Um, I would say that's probably the Battle of the Downs in 1639 when another very large Spanish fleet takes shelter off Dover and is smashed to pieces by the Dutch. Um, And the English fleet tries to keep them apart, but fails totally. And then, of course, we have Trafalgar in 1805. Curiously, curious coincidence, fought on the same day. Uh, Both 1639 and uh, uh, the Downs and Trafalgar are both fought on the 21st of October. Um, so you know that the Armada is 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 there on the he's, it's up there with the list of Spanish naval defeats, um, but it's it's not at the top. It was notable in 1988 uh, that both the um, English side, now the British side, because um, uh, although Mary Queen of Scots was executed, her son James uh, comes to the throne. In other words, Mary's claim was was regarded as perfectly reasonable. It's just she was a Catholic, whereas James was a Protestant. Uh, so it's now the British side. But at the British and the Spanish side, neither of them gloated. Uh, neither of them uh, uh, were really looking at um, 
were really looking at who won and who lost. It was more the human stories that predominated. So if there was, um, and, and indeed the same series uh, uh, made by Alan Herrera called Armada, it was a BBC trilogy. Um, it was made jointly by BBC and TVE, Televisión uh, Española, Radio, Radio Televisión Española, and uh, shown in both countries, uh, which is a remarkable feat when you think about it. Um, it, it, it showed both sides uh, uh, acting um, according to their beliefs. Uh, they were incompatible. They were not cotenable. But in the end, uh, the people who fought, fought with dignity, uh, died for their countries a long way from home, and they were the focus of the story. So, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I think now if you asked in Spain, you know, what about the Spanish Armada? Um, they would they would think you know well they, they would they would not regard that as a hostile question. Mm. Something I did want to raise earlier was the fact that um, the book had presented your book your and your colleagues had presented a new research about the Armada, both sort of documentary and physical. Um, did this change your understanding of it significantly? Yes, it it really starts with Colin um, Martin and the excavations. Uh, in the in the end, he 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 went uh, dived on three ships uh, that sank in 1588, and he could draw on the excavations of a couple of others. And on two of the ones he dived on, there was an enormous number of round shot. Now, the Spanish explanation: the commander of the Armada was the Duke of Medina Sidonia, uh, who is an expert on getting fleets to sea. Although he's a duke, he lives in uh, San Luca de Barrameda, right at the mouth of the Guadalquivir River, which is where all the fleets going to America sail from. So he is an expert in getting fleets to sea. And it should be noted that he gets the fleet out of Lisbon, 130 sailing ships, different calibers, different qualities. He gets all of them out with no losses. Uh, Storms drive them into Corona, after six weeks, but he gets them out again with no losses at all. So, you know, here is a guy who's really good at getting ships to sea. He is not, however, a fighting admiral. And he claims after the battle, you know, Sire, he writes to the king, he keeps a journal, he writes to the king, he says, the problem was we just didn't have enough ammunition. We we ran out of shot. And all the guys on the flagship who similarly uh, write uh, exculpatory letters to the king saying why they failed make the same argument. And so it was an astonishing surprise to Colin when on two of the ships he excavated, there was this enormous amount of heavy ammunition rounds. I mean, it's not, you know, there were very few of the smaller shot, but um, one of the shots, uh, one of the ships called Grand Griffon, uh, which was a, a merchantman from Rostock, which was uh, involved. It was the flagship of the uh, of a whole squadron. It had a general on board, one of the ten generals of the fleet, and yet uh, uh, it was issued with two hundred round shot, and he found ninety seven of them. Now, okay, if you found ninety seven, there are probably more down there. So at least half of the heavy ammunition on that ship was not used. Okay, so that's one ship out of 130. But it was the same story on the um, uh, the wreck Colin excavated uh, uh, off Donegal. And when I got to Simancas, um, the archives in Spain, I found the records of the ships that got back. And each ship is issued with large numbers of uh, uh, rounds for its artillery. 
uh, hundreds, some in some cases thousands, and it brings back almost all of them. So what's going on here? Why? Why? I mean, number one, why is Medina Sidonia lying? Uh, well, the answer there is obvious. You know, that's a pretty good excuse for why you fail. <laughs> um, and the king is not going to go checking through the records like like little nerds like me. Um, so he probably never knew. Uh, but uh, why were the rounds not fired? If they were there and they weren't fired, why not? And again, archaeologists to the rescue, because Colin found on one of the ships, the Trinidad Valencera, a very large ship, he found a gun carriage, which was simply impossible to fire. It was so long, it, you could not have fired it, run it back, and reloaded it. And we look more detail in, in, into this in more detail. And although we found lots of examples of slightly uh, less cumbersome uh, uh, artillery um, on the ship's uh, wrecks uh, uh, and in the designs in Simancas, they were all cumbersome, unlike those of the English ships, which all had those neat little truck carriages you see in all the films. And if you go to Stockholm and look at the warship Vasa, you will find that all of its guns were, were mounted on these very compact four-wheel truck carriages. And we know that the English used those in 1588. We also know from um, sources like uh, first person accounts, the diaries. A lot of the Spanish uh, commanders keep diaries which have survived. And they all comment that the English are firing far more rapidly than they are. They, they compare it to musket shot. They say they're firing it like muskets, you know, every three minutes. One, one, one guy who's a priest has a very good image. He said, I, I, no sooner had I started saying the Lord's Prayer than there was another round and I had to start again. Right. So that's pretty rapid. So the English are clearly firing very rapidly. Our theory is it's because they have these uh, carriages uh, and, and, and the same guys on the ships, the sailors, the crews, the gun crews, are used to their ships, whereas on the Armada, you have sailors who are not used to firing and reloading. They have no recognized drill. The first time they fire their guns with ammunition in it is the first day of the battle. They have no practice drills. They do for the soldiers. They do not for the gunners. So they're facing a new situation, and they're not up to it. They don't know how to fire uh, rapidly. They don't know how to reload rapidly. They learn. Uh, uh, in the end, they are firing more often. But it's a learning experience, and they're clearly at a disadvantage faced by the English fleet, which has, uh, has, has done training, tactics. And uh, 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 the final thing is the, the, the crews are, are new to the ships. Even the commanders are new to the ships. Whereas Howard of Effingham had spent months aboard uh, uh, the Ark Royal, and Drake had spent hour, a year, uh, months aboard the Revenge, uh, Medina Sidonia goes aboard the, uh, his flagship San Martin for the first time uh, a month before it sails. Even Juan Martinez de Recalde, who is probably the most experienced Spanish commander on the fleet, he only goes aboard his new ship, which is the San Juan de Portugal. He goes on it two months before it sets sail. And the crews are just the same. They're not familiar with their ship. They're not familiar with its gunnery. And I think put that all together when it comes to the test of battle. The Spaniards just do not have the training, the experience uh, 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 to uh, combat the English. They have the weapons, they have the tools, but they don't know how to use them.
Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. And obviously, as you sort of conclude, had Philip spent maybe a bit more time coordinating things <laughs> rather than pray, uh, being a prayer. But uh, yeah, but you see, Callum, that's a, that's a, he's the king, you know. <laughs> he is the man. He 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 is the chief. He's the CEO. Yeah, he's got CEOs a lot to, he's are got supposed a lot to, to have what George Bush what he's, George Bush called the vision thing. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's not supposed a, to know whether whether his guys can fire their guns. Yeah, no, he, this is this is a problem of um, uh, uh, of the Spanish Navy. Uh, its preferred tactic was boarding, and that is why every major Spanish ship in the fleet has two or three hundred soldiers on board. They are ready to board, and if they had got on board the English ships, they would have prevailed. No question about that. The English ships have few soldiers. They're less experienced. The Spanish troops are very good. What the Spanish side doesn't uh, hasn't reckoned with is that the English can have superior sail plans, faster ships. They can stay away and use long-range gunnery to do damage. They do not come close enough to board. Finally. In a bit of a bonus feature, Jeffrey tells us about some of his favourite bits of new material in the book, including research on the background of King Philip's commanders. Uh, Philip, uh, if if you take Philip's um, providential view that God is on his side, um, it's very strange that he doesn't pay more attention to the religious qualifications of his commanders. Uh, uh, Every... um, Everyone with aspirations to be a commander has to go through a process to become a knight. Okay, uh, you, you have to um, be nominated, and the king, as grandmaster of all the orders of chivalry, is the only guy who can nominate you. But then the nomination goes to a body called the Council of the Orders, and the Council of the Orders will send uh, two people: one, someone who is a knight, and a friar. And they will send them around all the places where you have lived and interview everyone who knew you to see whether you've passed three qualifications. First of all, are you a good Christian? And the definition for that is you don't have any Jewish blood in you. Number two, have you ever been involved with the Inquisition? And number three, have you ever worked for a living? And I went through the dossiers of all the commanders and senior officers on the Spanish Armada. Almost all of them have been preserved. And almost all of them fall short. Uh, uh, One of them is, is the grandson of two fornicating priests. Even the Duke of Medina Sidonia is descended from an archbishop which is not great, you know, he gets his order of knighthood, but he is in fact the son the illeg- descended from the illegitimate uh, uh, offspring of an archbishop. Um, uh, another, uh, uh, several of them have worked for a living because they're involved in trade. So you could say, you know, the Armada fails because Philip has not observed the rules of knighthood and he's promoted all these people who've worked for a living and that's where it goes wrong. I call that section men behaving badly. Uh, also, of course, a number of them have been involved in, in, in misconduct at court um, and have been exiled. And some of them have been imprisoned uh, for doing things like, you know, groping women in chapel, you know, that sort of stuff. And the, their get out of jail free card is, okay, sire, okay, sire, you want, you want men of quality on the armada. Here I am. Take me. 
and the king lets them out of jail and they go and serve on the armada. Well, you know, that's not that's not the way to please the Lord. Uh, and so even on if you even if you take uh, uh, Philip II's um, ambitions on his own terms, that this is a godly enterprise. He really screws up there. <laughs> not sure you can include that, Callum. Oh no, I'm definitely I'm not including sure you that. Can include that bit. Today. I'm definitely <laughs> including that bit. Uh, right, the smut, the smut, the smut, the smut like, exactly. Yeah. Yes, it was amazing to me in the Archivo Historico Nacional, which has the series military orders, to find how large some of the dossiers on the Armada commanders were, because. Um, uh, the, the 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 little committee of of the knight and the friar were very very thorough. They sometimes they interview eighty people uh, uh, to find out whether there's any smut, any dirt on these people proposed for knighthoods, and and when they find it, of course, they look they look more carefully. But there's an important issue here. I mean, it's not just raking up scandals worthy of um, a, a 20th century British cabinet. Everybody knows about these things, you see, because although the nomination of someone for knighthood is confidential then as now, once these committees come and start asking questions, everybody knows that the person has been proposed. And if they don't get it, which is the case in several cases, they are turned down the first time. Everybody knows. And you can bet on a fleet which has you know three or four men, hundred men confined in a small place. What are they going to do? They're going to tell stories about mm. each other. Did yeah. you know that the Prince of Ascoli was was exiled from court because he groped women during the Tenebras service? Uh, uh, tenebras is when you extinguish all the candles on on Holy Thursday. Um, and during one of the ceremonies, uh, the Prince of Ascoli and some of his chums saw a wonderful opportunity to sidle up to the ladies on the other side of the aisle and grope them. Of course, they're all exiled, as he's sent to prison. Um, but um, uh, uh, all of this stuff is known. And so you can imagine the whole fleet knows about this, and it does not necessarily increase respect for the commanders of the Armada. That was Geoffrey Parker talking to me there. And don't forget, you can read his article for us on the Spanish Armada in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, as well as online at the PASP website. And there's a link to that, as ever, in this episode's description. And Geoffrey and Colin's book, The Spanish Armada, England's Deliverance in 1588, will be available to buy in the UK from the 29th of November. More information about that is in the bio too. Thanks again to my guest, Geoffrey Parker, and thank you for listening.